This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently. For more information or to sign up, go to thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for a special unnumbered episode as we chat with copywriter and direct marketing consultant Clayton Makepeace about writing copy in the most competitive niches, his checklist for writing more powerful copy, what he's learned mentoring other copywriters, and how you can learn to write copy for the financial niche. Welcome, Clayton. Clayton. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. It's it's an honor. You've been on our list, as I mentioned before we recorded, for a long time. So we're lucky to finally get you on the show. To kick this off, let's start with your story. How did you end up as a copywriter? Okay, well, let's see. I was running a folding machine in like 1968 or 9 at a print shop in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the print shop printed appeal letters for a nonprofit organization. One day, this guy came through. His name was Richard Vigory. He was in his 40s. And it was like the second coming of Christ. I mean, we had to clean up the warehouse for this guy. I mean, it was like a real VIP, right? And it turns out he was the copywriter who was writing all of these appeal letters. And he also did a lot more for us. We had the first mainframe computer west of the Mississippi by any private company to uh, segment our file with. And this is in the late 60s. Anyway, I they, someone mentioned to me that Richard was making like $350,000 a year in 1968. And I thought, whoa, you know. And all I had to do at night was just sit around and run the folding machine and read these letters that he had written. And so I figured I could probably write one of these. And I asked the head of the organization, if I wrote one, would you mail it? And he said, well, if I like it, yeah. So I wrote a, an appeal letter. He mailed it. And it worked. But I wasn't smart enough to realize I could actually make a living doing this. So it was several years before I finally got back into this. And it was basically in L.A. We had a a recession in 73 and 74. I had been in the film industry and I couldn't get work. So I saw an ad for a small agency that needed a copywriter. And I'd had that previous successful experience. And so I applied for the job and I got it. That was how I got started. I love that. So before we jump into the whole copywriting thing, what did you do in the film industry? Well, I had my own soundstage at the old Columbia Studios on Gower Street in Hollywood, and I had a three-camera truck. And so during the week, I would go around town and I would basically rent the truck out, and I would be technical director or director on the shoot. So I had moved there because I was offered a job as a film editor on The Incredible Hulk. And 10 Speed and Brown Shoe and Baba Black Sheep. A friend of mine was a producer of those programs. But I couldn't get into the union. It was at Universal Studios and they were doing affirmative hiring. And so I couldn't get in the union because I was white. So I ended up having to do these non-union gigs like my own truck. So. Interesting. <laughs> so 
Did that experience teach you anything that's applicable to copywriting, having to you know, sell your services and process of editing and that kind of a thing? Or was it just sort of simply a totally different career and copywriting was, was something new? No, no. I think sales is sales, right? I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard, although I didn't follow it, <laughs> was, you know, if you want to be a great copywriter, forget copywriting. Go be an insurance salesman door to door. Learn how to handle rejection. Learn how to overcome objections. Learn how to persuade. So, yeah, I had I had the gig as a, a used car salesman for a while. And I really was horrible at that, by the way. I was really terrible. And if I had to use that as like a weather vane to see if I should, you know, go into copywriting, I would have probably said no. And then another job was uh, selling something called Buyer's Club door to door, where you pay some money to join this club and then you can buy things at a discount. So I think that's really good advice. I mean, we're salesmen in print. That's all we are. We're salespeople. And I think we should be compensated like salespeople, which means we should get a commission on what we sell. And, you know, it means that if we want to refine our skills, we just we can look at this. I mean, how long have there been salesmen? Right. How long have there been salespeople? They have thousands of years of experience in what motivates people, what moves people, and what what gets people to make purchase decisions. So, yeah, I think I learned a lot from that. I'm just curious, you know, you mentioned your first appeal worked when you sent it out and then you, it sounds like you waited a couple of years until you joined that first agency job. What happened in between there when the first appeal worked and you celebrated, why didn't you continue and create another one? What happened at that point? Because it was actually, no one asked me to. <laughs> <laughs> My heart was in the motion picture film industry. Yeah. Soon after that happened, I was offered a job as associate director on a nationally syndicated television show. And so that's really where my heart was. And I had done the copywriting thing just to see if I could do it because I thought I could. But film was my first love, film and video. And so it really took another several years until we had that big recession and there was no film and TV work in L.A. for me to break out and, and to go into copywriting. So once you got hired onto that small agency, was it direct response type work that you were doing? Was it more agency brand type work? What were those first couple of clients like? And then how did you branch out into doing your own thing? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad I know what the next question is, so I'll not name the agency. <laughs> it was a small direct response agency. Basically, it was a small list brokerage. And they had a franchise for one of the big list companies, a compile list company. But they also rented regular buyer lists and so forth. And the owner of the agency's reasoning was, if I get a good copywriter in here, my list will work better. I'll rent more names and I'll make more money. And so I came in, came to work, but it was all direct response work right from the get-go. In fact, my first two weeks, they told me, don't even come into the office. Here's a stack of books. Just go home and read them. <laughs> it was Claude Hopkins, uh, David Ogilvie, Vic Schwab, all of the masters. So yeah, I read I read professionally for two or three weeks, got paid to do it, and then came in and started knocking out copy. So you mentioned your love for you know the movie industry. When did you start to feel that love for copywriting, and when did you feel that spark? Wow, never. <laughs> Basically, you know, I I was following the money. Yeah. The job at Universal was 70000 a year. It fell through. I had a pregnant wife and a two-year-old, and I had to make a living. And so this copywriting gig came up, 
and it looked pretty good. He offered me the grand amount of 15000 a year, uh, <laughs> but then a, a nice bonus, basically almost doubling my salary if I got him to a million dollars in creative sales, which, which I did. But then the second part of the question is, the head of the agency screwed me instead of paying me my bonus at the end of the year. When his accountant told him basically he owed me the money, he fired me. And it was just before Christmas, too. What a jerk. And so I just told him, you know what occurs to me that not one of these new clients I brought in even knows who you are. So, you know, thanks for this. I'm taking all your clients. Bye. And I did. And so I went from 15000 a year to 35000 a month in income at that moment. I mean, it was still a struggle over the years, building a reputation as a freelancer and so forth. But that was really when it began for me. Wow. Okay. So in those days where you made this transition, how did you improve as a copywriter? I mean, you, you mentioned the books you were reading. What else were you doing to continue to improve? Well, the main thing I did was I wanted to write for the financial markets because I could see that that's where the money was. And we uh, managed Howard Ruff's list. He was the biggest financial newsletter editor at the time. So I was well aware of that industry. And so I subscribed to probably eight or 10 financial newsletters. And I used a different middle initial on each subscription. So I'd know later on, I could track the use of my name. Then I started running to the mailbox every day because I knew these guys were renting each other their mailing list. And by subscribing to one product, I'd get the promotions that all of them were doing. And I'd grab the promos. I'd go running into my house with my scissors and grab this little scrapbook. And I'd start studying these packages. And I outlined them. And I would then cut them up. And I had a scrapbook for headlines, a scrapbook for opening copy and so forth just sitting on the floor of my living room doing this. And years later, I found out that there were two copywriters that I was following the most closely, uh, were Jim Rutz and Gary Bensavenga. And we became friends later on in life. And when we did, I told Gary, I said, you don't know this, but you were my mentor. I learned about copywriting. Of course, I read the masters, but I actually learned how to do it on a job-by-job basis by studying your copy. Gary was like 10 years ahead of me. And so I still think of him as my mentor. And I still use outlines and other ideas that I stole from Gary back in the in the early 70s. It's funny that you say that because I've done some of the same things with Gary, but I've also done the same thing following some of the things you've done, Clayton. You know, when I came back to copywriting, one of the first things I did was hop onto your website and copy and paste all of the interviews that you had done with great copywriters and put them into a big Word document that sits on my desktop. So it's kind of interesting. That's a good way to learn from other people. Yeah. If you remember when I interviewed Gary, I told him how much he meant to me. And and he said, well, wow, now I'm all excited. I can't wait till my wife hears this interview. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's true. So you mentioned, you know, that it took you a little while to build your reputation. You know, what were the specific things that you were doing in order to, you know, build that reputation so that people started coming to you instead of you having to chase the clients? Yeah, well, at first, I wanted to be in the financial space, but I had to take whatever work came in. So, I mean, I had one guy that was selling investment-grade diamonds. I had another guy that was selling point-of-use water heaters. I had a guy in Rodeo Drive that was selling Belgian pastries, all through direct response. And, you know, most of those things didn't work that well. And so 
I really wasn't building a very good reputation at that point. Really none at all, because I hadn't specialized in a niche and I wasn't really known any, anywhere. But then things started to turn for me when Howard Jarvis, Paul Gann started an initiative in California to limit the property tax. They had people losing their homes because they couldn't afford to pay taxes on them. And so they did a contest for all the agencies in L.A. Whoever wrote the best fundraising letter for their ballot initiative would win the account. And so I won the account. So that kind of got me better gigs around L.A. with some of the big eight advertising companies. But when it really turned for me, I had just moved from L.A. to Prescott. Didn't have a lot of money. I was returning a U-Haul truck just to be able to buy groceries to get the deposit back. And uh, I was down in Phoenix and I thought, you know, there's a guy here, Johnny Johnson has research publications. I'll just give him a call. So I called him up on the phone and I just said, Johnny, you don't know me, but I just saw your control for your newsletter. And I have to tell you, it just sucks. It absolutely blows. And I said, I can beat it in a walk. And I'm so sure of that I'm not going to charge you anything to write your promo. But if it wins, if it beats your current control, you have to pay me double. That was really when it all began for me. I beat the living daylights out of his control. He had nine other newsletters he was publishing. I developed controls for each one of those. From there, things really got a little weird. I guess we, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about the whole track of my career, but that opened the door for me then with a coin company in Minneapolis, a company that was selling a newsletter as a front end for selling gold and silver coins. I exploded that company in the space of 12 months, took them from $3 million a month to $16 million a month in sales. Wow. So things really started taking off then. So for copywriters that are listening that you know are hearing those stats and it just, it blows your mind and it almost could seem far out of reach too for some newer copywriters. Could you give some practical advice for new copywriters that hear that? Like, what were you doing at that time to have these great successes? What was working really well that we could do today? I think the best lesson really, or one of the best ones comes from that coin company because they put out a newsletter called The Money Advocate, and it was supposedly on just general investing. But in reality, when you got the newsletter, you found out that there was a section in the newsletter that promoted investment grade coins. And there would always be a flyer that went out with the newsletter promoting one particular coin for sale. And the people who were running the business were real coin nerds. I mean, they really got off on mintages and who the who the sculptor was and how much silver is in or gold is in the coin and how many were melted back in the day and how many survived today and you know, that kind of stuff. And it just puts me to sleep. So I asked the guy, send me a coin so I can see what it is I'm going to be selling. And he sent me an old Morgan silver dollar. Oh, and it, it, he was so cheap. He sent me an old circulated one. It was all scuffed up. <laughs> and, but I took it out of the envelope and I looked at it in my hand. It was like that movie somewhere in time. And that was the first thing, you know, it, it, it transports you. It takes you back in time and it tells a story. You know, so I looked at that coin and I thought, this isn't about mintages. It's not about silver content. Nobody's buying this because they melted a million of them. You know, people are buying this because it's cool. You know, that's it. You know, they're not buying it because it'll go up in value. That's the excuse they give their wives. 
they're buying it because it's cool, because it reminds them of Gunsmoke and Bonanza and How Gun Will Travel. Maybe a frontier hooker was paid with this. Maybe it was in a chest, a Wells Fargo chest that was robbed. You know, maybe maybe Jesse James stole it. You know, the, the coin had a story. Nobody knows what it was. But that's why they buy it, you know. As soon as I hit on that, I knew I had them. So my first line of copy was basically, if this coin could talk, what stories would it tell? It seems like that's kind of the key to a lot of the different sales type things that we do. It's, it's finding the story behind the thing that we're selling. Would you agree? I think it was an Ogilvy executive who said, nobody ever needs anything that we sell. All they need is a cave of fire and a piece of meat, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah. And it's really true. But so why, do we, why am I wearing a Rolex? You know, why does my wife drive a Land Rover? There, there are cheaper ways to go, smarter ways to go. But why do we do those things? Because we're getting emotional gratification out of it. We're not, you know, nobody needs a, a Land Rover. Nobody needs a Bentley or a Rolls. We get emotional gratification out of owning those things. And so once you understand that, you look at your products and you look at your market in a whole new way. And you can realize then this isn't about the left brain boring dumbass statistics about mintages and melts. This is about my prospects yearning to connect with a simpler time, you know, and I can do that for him. And there's money in doing that for him. And so we went from a $3 million a month average sales to $16 million in one year simply by doing that, by presenting these coins as historical artifacts that told stories about American history. And, you know, it was a huge breakthrough. I don't want to necessarily jump to the end of the story, but how do you apply that to the products that you write for today at Money Map? I'm assuming it's a similar trick, but how do you draw that same emotional line? Well, you realize that you're not selling a newsletter. You know, you're not selling even a premium, the freebies we give away. You're selling emotional gratification. I mean, some fat guy gets on the radio. Next thing you know, he's a billionaire, not selling a thing. You know, how come? Well, because Rush Limbaugh puts my own feelings into words in a way that's cathartic for me. And there's value in that. Right. So I always look for the emotional connection to my prospect between the product and the prospect. You know, Carlene Anglade Cole, you guys probably know her. She's a good friend. And, you know, I, I tell her all the time, you know, you want a headline, you want opening copy that addresses the fact that last night your prospect sat bolt upright in bed, slapped himself in the forehead and said, oh, my God, I need to blank. Right. Maybe the blank is save more for retirement. Maybe the blank is to uh, cut my taxes. Maybe, I don't know what the blank is, but there's something in his life that's causing him fits right now. It's either an unfulfilled desire or an unexpressed or unaddressed fear. And if you can provide a solution to that, then you'll get very, very wealthy. So, and you know what? Thinking back about the very first copy I ever wrote, I really learned that there because it was an appeal letter and I, I didn't have anything to sell. You know, I couldn't present a product and all the benefits and why your lawn will be greener and you'll grow hair on your head and all of these other wonderful things will happen if you buy my product. Basically, you give me 10 bucks, you're going to be 10 bucks poorer, right? I'm going to go spend that money on things I think you agree with, but 
There's no, the only personal benefit you get out of making a donation is an emotional one. And yet these people were raising 60 million, $100 million a year without a product to sell. That gives you some idea of the power of emotion. Yeah. You get people cut you a check and they're getting not, nothing tangible in return. And so that, that really was the beginning of that realization that it paid off very well over the years. I, and I went from that coin dealer when I found out they weren't quite on the up and up in some ways. I left them, went to Blanchard and did the same thing again at Blanchard and Company. What else can copywriters do to figure out that emotional connection before they start writing? Are there any other questions we should ask or exercises? What else do you do? Well, you know, some of the best health writers I know will actually go to an old folks home and spend the day, you know. I know most of us copywriters are copywriters because we can't stand the rejection of doing face-to-face sales, or maybe we're a little introverted. Right. But I mean, your prospect's sitting there in a retirement home not two miles from your house, you know, and they're dying for someone to talk to. And so I can't remember if it was Carlene or Paris, but one of the two of them used to just pick up and run over there for, the, for a day or a half a day and just talk to people. And immediately identify what are they frustrated about? What are they angry about? What are they happy about, excited about, fearful of? You know, what is their personal drama right now? And so I think the answer is talking to people. And, you know, you can get a lot of that in a lot of different ways. Dan Rosenthal, who just passed away, he wore these big Coke bottle glasses and it made his eyes look massive. And imagine this guy running up to you, total stranger on the street with this wild look on his face. He shoves a bunch of papers in your face, says, read this. And he sits there and watches you while you read. That's Rosenthal. Okay. And he says, those people gave him better Chris than any direct mail manager or copy chief he ever worked with. Wow. So go to where the prospects are would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And then once you have that, one of the things, you must have put this together years ago, but you put together what you call the pretty darn good outline for a sales message that has been shared around the internet. And I think something that Kira's probably used in some of her sales letters. I've certainly used it (laughs) just as a guide. But once you've got all that stuff in place, you've done your research, how do you get it on the page so that it makes that you know that emotional connection you're talking about, and it and it really you know hits home so that people are you know wanting to read past page one of a multi-page sales letter? Right. There's so many answers to that. So many young copywriters will sit down and the you know they've had it beaten into them benefits, benefits, benefits. So you end up with a lot of big promise packages that may or may not fulfill on that promise, and. Very few like long copy story kind of packages and so forth. So, you know, the younger copywriters will just write in a factually based manner instead of sitting there as they're writing in touch. And I I just call it feeling my way through the copy. You've got to, how is my prospect feeling right here? You know, a big part of the Agora method for critiquing copy has to do with what is my prospect thinking right here? Right. Is he uh, and I guess feeling is he bored? Is he curious? Is he dubious, skeptical? You know, what is his emotion right here? And I was doing it differently. Not whereas Mike Palmer and and Mark Ford identified like four or five emotions that you typically have when you read copy. Most of them having to do with the copy itself, like, oh, I'm bored or oh, I don't believe you. Right. 
And those are great, but I think they're the beginning. I think the next step is, well, what am I feeling generally as I'm reading through this? Where, you know, and Mike Ward says, have a little Geiger counter by your side and, and be sensitive to when it starts screaming. My wife, Wendy, is really good at that. I mean, she'll read through copy and she'll find, you know, she'll buzz through the first five pages, circle something on page six and say, there's your lead, you know, because she can feel it. She can feel it happen. This is where you really got my attention. So the key really, and I know it's hard to do because everybody has learned all the copywriting rules. Everybody's learned all this stuff about do's and don'ts of copywriting. And it's all left brain stuff. It's all rules. The, the best answer might be read your copy like your prospect reads it instead of reading it like a writer. Well, here I'm trying to accomplish this. Here I'm trying to accomplish that. Read it like your prospect experiences it emotionally. And I think that'll give you an awful lot of clues as to how to strengthen it. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that and your your process and what that looks like today at MoneyMap with a team potentially. You know, how many versions does it take before a package even goes out? Well, that's all over the map, okay? The, first of all, you know, in finance, there, there are a lot of different kinds of packages, right? There's the process package, like the hook pattern or the X pattern package that explains how an analyst identifies great opportunities to market. That's like a process, right? There are a lot of supply and demand type packages where they're talking about a new demand force that's going to dry up a commodity, drive prices high, and you'll make all this money if you're aware of it. We've seen those in, you know, things like battery metals and those kinds of things. And then there's technology leads and there are story leads. There are all these different ways to go. And each one of them, the, the answer is a little different. If I'm doing a straight supply and demand kind of package, like, oh, my God, the world's running out of uranium and China just authorized 300 new reactors. Price is going to go sky high. That's a very short project, quite frankly. That's the kind of thing you can crank out in less than a month with all the collateral. But right now, I'm working on something I've been working on since since late August. One promo. It is now early December. And this came to me not fully formed. Mike came to me with an idea that's been bouncing around for six years. He hasn't been able to find a copywriter that can do it. He said, would you like to try? I said, sure. Well, here's my general idea. Well, that was in August, and the idea has changed at least five major ways since then. And so we're basically trying to create the theme as we go along. And so that's taking longer. So all of this stuff, it's all over the map. Now, I have a pod that now I'm down to one copywriter in my group. I'm proud to say that my first two liked being at Money Map so much. They're moving to Baltimore. Oh. One moving from Prague and one moving from Sarasota, but they love being in the team atmosphere so much. They both quit my pod and and went to work for Mike there in, in Baltimore. So I'm down to one writer, Paul Martinez, in my pod. I'm going to be adding one, maybe two more writers in the next month or two. So, you know, what we're doing right now is focusing on the front end. This is a little inside baseball, but the networks are getting very strict about what they'll let you run. And so my pod is focusing on the front end and figuring out ways to work with the networks to get maximum scalability on our promos. 
Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the Copywriter Underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership? So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community, and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice, again, on those three areas, copywriting, marketing, and mindset, things that you can mark up and you know tear out, put them in your files, save them for whatever, and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Carol, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground? So I, I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those. So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program. So Clayton, when you talk about the different kinds of letters or promos that you write in the process or story or supply and demand, have you found that one is particularly effective or more effective than the others, or is it really all over the board? It just depends on how strong the story is. If you look back at internet promotions in the financial space, there's one that stands out head and shoulders above everything, and that's the end of America. Mike Palmer's great BSL. And, you know, it worked so well for a lot of reasons. One of them was that it was the first BSL in our space. But another reason is that the theme was huge. You know, if you give me a theme on cobalt or uranium or vanadium or some other commodity or oil that's about to come into short supply, that's it's like a one-stock package, isn't it? It's not about the end of life as we know it. It doesn't have that kind of gravitas and it doesn't get that kind of engagement. But with End of America, he was talking about America losing its reserve currency status to China, which would completely devastate the country. So much bigger theme. The other thing about End of America that if we're looking for themes that you know really get the big traction was there were two consequences to End of America. The first one was almost too horrible to contemplate, right? Complete financial failure, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other one was, well, if you're one of the smart ones, though, this can make you rich. So there was a carrot and a stick. You know, if you do this, you'll make money. If you don't do this, you're screwed. So in a lot of our promotions today, there's no stick. There's just the carrot. And, you know, buy this stock, you make all this money. So a bigger theme is going to typically have, have the stick as well as the carrot. Of fear as well as greed. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. So can you talk more about the relationship between the theme, the big idea and the emotional connection and how, because it seems like the theme is almost an answer, a response to the emotional connection, but can you just talk about how they, they're all connected together? Well, there's a part of the process. A lot of people miss, you know, the theme to me is the elevator pitch as Jed Candy would 
stated. It's elevator pitch. It's a two minutes. Okay, this thing is happening. There's one company set to profit from it. And the last time something like this happened, the stock went up a thousand percent. So we, we've got a big possible profit there. Okay, so that's a platform. Okay, and maybe it's uranium or maybe it's a chart pattern or maybe it's the end of America. I don't know. But, you know, that's the basic platform. So then the next question you have to ask, though, is, but how do I sell this? Mm-hmm. Right. You go straight in and you say, well, vanadium, they're going to say, what the hell is that? I don't know what vanadium is. It's, they're not familiar with that. If you just go in and say oil prices are going to skyrocket, they're, you know, most people won't believe that, especially with oil prices falling right now. So, you know, how do I sell this? How do I sell my prospect on watching this video? Now, that's actually more important than what's my theme, right? Because if he doesn't want to watch the video, you're screwed. So, you know, what's my theme? I'll give you an example. I had a promo I started working on that was later abandoned, for reason I'll mention in a moment, that had to do with the fact that Saudi Arabia was selling 5% of Aramco, the Saudi royal family's personally owned, privately owned oil company. And this was huge news on a lot of levels. Maybe it meant that China would buy it and there would be China petrodollars, petro yuan, in addition to American petrodollars, which would be horrible for the U.S. dollar, horrible for interest rates, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there was just a lot of speculation around this and some of it good, some of it bad. And so, okay, so we everyone knows Aramco is going to be sold. 5% of the stake would be sold. Everyone knows that was in the news. But how do we sell this idea to the prospect that it's worth an hour of his time to sit there and watch a video on this? Okay. And a lot of people just don't ask that question. They kind of sleepwalk through that. But how do I sell this? So I hit on the idea of, well, I started asking questions. Who's the guy behind this? Who's the guy that decides that it's a good idea to sell off 5% of the Saudi family's most valuable asset? Who is this guy? Well, it turns out he was Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's the heir to the Saudi throne and whose father is like 86 years old. And so he's gradually taking over more functions of government. Okay, so, all right, it's Mohammed bin Salman. So let's look into him and see what's the story there. Oh, my God, the man owns a house at Versailles. Okay, he he paid $400 million for his yacht. He owns a, a Rembrandt of Christ that he paid $600 million for. He's liberalizing all the laws in Saudi Arabia. Women can drive. Women can get jobs outside the home. Uh, His critics, of course, as critics will always do, are uh, attacking him for the things he hasn't gotten to yet, but he's working his way through the economy. He bought a half a trillion dollars worth of weapons from Trump. His country is now the third most powerful country on earth militarily. So, this guy is fascinating. A story about this guy could be huge, right? So the way in was popularly known around the office as the most interesting man in the world approach. And and so that's how we sold it. And there's something else interesting happening there too. And I learned this from Mike Ward, who's unbelievably brilliant. Most writers, especially younger writers, will go in and say, 305% profits as oil prices shoot to $200 a barrel, right? Something crap like that. 
and they'll have it all, you know, benefits and everything and a big headline in it. But they're the obvious benefits. They telegraph this as a promotion. They telegraph this is about stocks. They telegraph that this is about everything your prospect really doesn't want to know anything about right now. So instead of going in with the big benefits right up front, what if you were to do something that is so interesting or controversial or revealing that your prospect momentarily forgets about time? He forgets where he is, what he's doing, what problems he has on his desk, you know, what he was thinking about 10 minutes ago. He's totally engrossed in what you're showing him now. So that's the first question. How do I get my prospect's full attention? And that is the, how do we sell that argument? And you have to really answer that before you get into writing your lead. The other thing that you have to answer, by the way, is what's my solution? A lot of times I'll, I have started, and I won't do this anymore, I, I started a promotion based on a theme and they said, oh, we'll come up with a solution. We'll find the stocks that we're going to recommend in the free gifts. You know, don't worry about that. This is the theme. You can go ahead and get started with this. Well, you do have to worry about that because you get down to that and you find out, well, there are no solutions. That's happened to me. There's no company that deals in this product. Another time they gave me a, a company that wasn't even going to exist after two years. You know, so no, you got to nail down. What is the solution? What are, what are we going to tell people to do about this? What is the payoff in the premium? Because that'll go a long way too to making sure you don't screw up in your opening copy. As I listen to you talk about all of this stuff, it sounds to me like so much of what you do and what we do as copywriters is overcoming objections. And I wonder if you've got any you know simple tricks. I'm sure they're not simple, but you know, some advice for those of us to identify the objections, maybe, and then how do we overcome them? You know, so that our prospects will believe the things that we have to say. You ask sure questions with long answers. <laughs> the objections can be overcome in one of two ways. Number one is you mention the objection. You wait until your prospects having it. You know the the. The point in the copy where you think, oh, he's got to be thinking this now, right? Mm -hmm. and, you, and you say, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this, but you know what? Look at this, you know? So that way you actually identify the objection. You only do that when you know you can absolutely obliterate it and do it in just a line or two. So if the objection is something like, okay, so on one of my packages that I, I was working on recently, it was, yeah, why don't politicians and bureaucrats enforce this particular regulation, this law, right? So that was a really, and, and you'd have to see the copy, but in the copy, it was an obvious question that you would have. Well, obviously this is illegal what they're doing. Why don't they just enforce the law? Okay. So on that one, I didn't have to go into a long explanation. All I had to do is say it's simple. You know, this kind of company makes bigger contributions than that kind of company, bigger political contributions handled, done, and, and, and with a twinkle in your eye. You know, everybody gets that, right? Uh -huh. Other times you have to go more in depth and you have to, or other times you can't really put the objection totally to bed, in which case you don't name it specifically. You simply present your evidence for overcoming it without ever giving the objection a name. So if you can't put it to bed, just absolutely obliterate it, you know, address it without naming it. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Can you give an example of addressing it without naming it? Let me think here. I'll have to make something up real quick. Okay. 
Well, let's say the objection is the cost of the product, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you don't have to say, well, I understand, you know, you're a loser. You have no money. Um, Plus on top of that, you're cheap, Um, you know, and and it really developed the problem. All you have to do is say, oh, and by the way, this is 75% off if you sign up within the next 10 minutes. Right. Right. You've addressed the objection without giving it a name. Okay. I'd love to hear about more mistakes that newer copywriters make. You know, you mentioned that there's not enough emotional connection. It's just very benefit driven. What else are we doing often that we should be aware of? Well, this is this is another thing that Mike has given me. Oh, geez, so much. You know, I had a really great career before I went to Money Map. It's almost 50 years. And I'm learning so much right now just from being with people who have a different take on things, right? Mm-hmm. So one of them is, and this is one of Mike's pet peeves, abstractions. Mike says, nobody gets, has ever been shot with a gun. Ever in the history of mankind, no one's been shot with a gun. Some people have been shot with pistols. Some people have been shot with rifles. Some people have been shot with 1911 Colt 45s, but n- never a gun. And his point is that when you use abstractions like gun, when you say the word gun, it could be anything from that massive cannon on an A-10 war- warthog down to a little pea shooter pocket 380 that people carry around. You know, it, it's, it's, it's unspecific. The minute you look at your copy and you say, I'm going to eliminate abstractions. I am going to make sure that every paragraph has specifics in it that really make the copy sing and soar. You would be amazed at the difference, the vibrance of your copy. To answer the question the way that you asked it, most young writers will go in and their eyes roll up in their head and they'll just blah, blah for two or three or four pages without a single fact without a single data point, without a single statistic, without anything that's tangible or specific. And they'll just prattle on. They're trying to set the stage. I call it foreplay. But sooner or later, foreplay, you got to move on, you know. (laughs) With us, the difference is if you the first paragraph you read has a fact in it, a figure in it that you'd never heard before or that's fascinating or intriguing in some way, you're off to the races. You don't have to explain everything, anything. You've got them. Okay. So I think getting rid of abstractions is a great one. Another one is a lot of young writers will go straight to the offer in the headline copy. They'll say something in the headline about limited time or 50% discount till December 31st or free report shows or, you know, whatever. Well, we know from running VSLs and watching engagement scores We know that the one moment when you get the biggest tune-out rate in the entire VSL, and it's the moment when the order button comes up. It's the moment when you finally break down and admit, yes, this is a promotion. I want to sell you something. At that moment, people wink out like crazy. So why would you want to put that information on the top of your promotion? So they wink out before they even begin. You tell them this is a promotion because you have a discount, you have a deadline, you mentioned the product, you mentioned the free premium, you know, why would you want to do that? So, you know, get that stuff out of of the lead copy, out of the headline copy, put it where it belongs back at the back. And I'll give you one more just because I thought it was funny. One of our analysts has a kind of bio that you would kill for. 
40 years with the CIA, 23 commendations from the intelligence community, three presidential citations, meets with the Queen England every year at Windsor Castle to brief her on energy policy. The guy is amazing, right? But his whole thing is oil. He's an expert on oil investing. Well, one of my juniors was writing a promo on a battery metal, which is still falls in this guy's area because it's energy related. So battery metal. And so he's going blah, 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 battery, battery, battery. And then he goes, hi, my name is Dr. Kent Morris. And I brief the queen on energy policy every year at Windsor Castle. And I do energy for CIA and NSA and nothing to do with batteries. I mean, we're trying to credentialize this guy as an expert on battery metals, but his whole bio was about oil. Now, you would think that even to a junior writer, it would have occurred to him, hey, wait a minute, this bio is about oil and I'm right. I want people to think he's an expert at battery metals or vanadium or cobalt or whatever it was. And so it seemed like an obvious mistake. But you know how many times I've seen that? I see it. Like I'd say in a third of all the copy I get in here, the bio is not. It's like a bio they pulled from another promotion someplace. It's not tailored to this promotion. So. Yeah, those those are so good. And I've definitely made that last mistake many times. So I want to ask about something. By the way, that goes with bios just real yeah. quick. The time, when do you present your bio, right? Right. Every writer knows, well, you know, at some point in the first, say, five minutes or 10 minutes, I got to say, hi, my name is Dr. Kent Morris and I'm blah, blah, blah. Right. But when? And, you know, the, and nobody puts it in the right place. The, the right place is... When you've got your prospects saying, holy crap, I didn't know this. This can't really be right. Could it? When your prospect is at that place, that's when you say, hi, Mike, my name is Kent Moore, and I know any more than anyone else on earth about oil. You know, that's when you do it. So. Wow. Okay. This is great. I want to ask about your day and I'm just trying to picture your day and how you run your day, even if it's not a typical day, you know, do you write for a couple hours all day? Do you have to take breaks? Like how do you do your best work in an ideal environment, knowing that it's not always ideal? Years ago, I got, I became single after 20 years of marriage and figured out fairly quickly that all the women hit the bars down at the beach around noon. And so I had to get there <laughs> about the same time. And so I figured out, well, if I'm going to get eight hours in, I got to start at 4 a.m. So I started working at 4 a.m. And this is 26, 27 years ago now. And I've never gotten out of that habit. It's a great time to work. No one calls. You know, it's, it's just perfect. I usually will work till noon. Now, to be fair, some mornings I'll sleep in till five. And this morning I slept in till five. On Mondays I do that a little bit. But then I can work till noon, get seven or eight hours in. And I found about six hours of copywriting is about all I can do before I just start doing less good than harm. And so my afternoons are used for administrative tasks or maybe left brain stuff like research or whatever. But my copywriting time, my prime copywriting time is from four in the morning till about noon. Wow. That, I, I, I have a feeling that Kira's saying, okay, that's cool. Cause I know she gets up sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I like, I love the early morning. I think you're confirming that that's something I want to continue. I've done it for a while, but uh, what time do you usually go to bed? 
Well, it depends. It's kind of all over the place. I'd say during the week, probably by nine. Okay. Okay. I just, I need six, seven hours sleep. That's all. Yeah. But on weekends, we stay out until the wee hours. And just take a nap first. <laughs> first. So Clayton, I want to shift gears here and talk or ask about this training program that you've put together. I know this is a cool opportunity for at least a couple of writers, you know, who might be interested in getting into the financial space. Will you tell us a little bit about what you're doing and you know how it all how it all comes together and the opportunity? You bet. As with all direct response companies, Money Map is eager for more copywriters. We are trying to help the process along a little bit. On the one hand, I get emails every single day and Facebook posts and messengers and stuff. You know, how can I work with you? How can I be mentored by you? And obviously I can't accept everybody that that applies. At the same time though, Money Map desperately needs more copywriters. So I came up with this idea. It's a program. It's actually just started. We had our very first webinar this week, last week, and we gave everyone who signed up for this thing an assignment. And it, everyone gets the same assignment. There's a video online that you'll get that you can watch this. Then there are uh, several other webinars I'll be doing between now and March. One is on my outline, the pretty good outline that you just mentioned, and how I use it. So I never look at a blank page. Another one is how the financial markets work. You may be a, a health copywriter or work in some other area, and you haven't tried finance, even though you know that's where the money is, because you don't really understand how stocks work and how the economy works. That's okay. We will teach you that. Okay. So you'll have these advanced webinars that prepare you. There's another one on research, doing research for a financial promo, where I show you the sources I use. Then you'll have you know, time to write your, your promotion. We give you all the support you need to get that done. Then March 7th and 8th, we're all in Baltimore. And we're going to be doing some things at the Money Map offices, some things at a hotel. But in Baltimore, there will be a presentation followed by an hour and a half work session, followed by a, a hot seat session. And the people doing the presentations will be Mike Ward, who's the head of Money Map Press, Jed Candy, who you may have heard of, absolutely brilliant, brilliant young copywriter. I think Bill Bonner told me he made more money in less time for Agora than any other copywriter they've ever had. Henry Bingaman, who's one of Jed's protégés, but also has made a huge name for himself. In fact, if you saw the cannabis promotion that Money Map just did with John Boehner, that was Henry Bingaman's copy and did extremely well. Terry Weiss, who's one of our copy chiefs. Jared Feintook, who's like the all-time king of process promotions. And myself. And then Marcella Allison will also be there to help to assist. And so each of us will have a presentation on a different part of your copy. My presentation in Baltimore will be on your closing copy. And so then after my presentation, you'll have an hour and a half to work on your closing copy. And then we'll throw a bunch of it up on the screen and a panel of the experts I just named will give you crits, show you how it could be improved. Then after Baltimore, there'll be two more for two months. There'll be every two weeks, there'll be a, a webinar where I just show up online and wait for you guys. So if you have copy that you want me to crit or you want to just ask questions, we can do that. At any point during that process, if you think your copy is ready, you send it in. The team will look at it and if they like what they see, 
you'll get an assignment for $12,500 plus 5% uh, royalty. And if they like that process, if everyone likes that process, you'll be offered a full position where we'll keep you busy. Now, the thing about this is you don't have to move to Baltimore. There are two other ways to get to work with MoneyMap. Both of them, you send a sample, either an actual promo or a spec to a website, and uh, you'll be contacted. But if you're a beginner, the position that's open for you is in Baltimore. Okay, This way, you can work like a freelancer at first from anywhere in the world, and you don't have to move to Baltimore. You can, of course, if you want to, and you go directly to working on long copy. The other two ways, they would start you out writing renewals and so forth. So it's a great opportunity. It's a fantastic opportunity. I wish they'd had something like this for me when I was getting started. The thing is, though, we're only taking 50 people and we're over 40. These seats are already sold. Oh, wow. You're going to probably have to move quickly. The, the link is www.awai.com forward slash financial intensive. The price is 5000 a seat, but if you get in now, it's 4000 So you save 1000 bucks. So that's it. Is there a wait list for another one in case this does fill up over the next few weeks? Not at this time, no. Okay. All right. Sounds like a great opportunity. I think Rob's probably already filling yeah, out the Rob, application. Rob's typing it out right now. Uh, just to, <laughs> to me, it feels like the kind of thing, that even if you didn't end up writing for Money Map, just building those skills and having the opportunity to you know, have these literal copy geniuses critique your work. I mean, it just feels yeah. like an, an awesome opportunity. So, And making and those connections, if, too. If you get the assignment at the back end, it's even better. Yeah. Well, you know, the, I can't imagine if, I, you know, I was a new writer and I had an opportunity like this, I would have been all over it. But it took me, what, 20 years to get to a million dollars a year in income? You know, Carlene got to a quarter million her very first year. So having a mentor really helps. So. Is there anything, Clayton, we should know as far as who this is for and who it's not for? I would prefer, obviously, to have writers there. The purpose of doing this is not to make a whole lot of money. The purpose of doing this, I mean, through registration sales, the purpose of doing this is to make a whole lot of money by getting a whole bunch of good copywriters. And there's no way to know for sure, because sometimes there are copywriters who are brand new who go on to just you know, knock it out of the park on everything. Other times there are old tired ones that just come to life. So, you know, we just, we just don't know how that's going to go. We, we want everybody there to end up working for us. That's for sure. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And Clayton, we didn't ask you yet, but if people are just interested in following you, where could they find you? What's your hub online? You know, I don't really have one. I've got a Facebook page, but it's mostly a bunch of political posts. But you can kind of follow what I'm up to at AWAI. Just go to awai.com and sign up for their free e-zine and they'll keep you posted on what I'm up to. And I, I will say this too. I mean, the interviews that you did with all these copywriters are still available if you hunt for them on the total package, Make, Make Peace Package, your website. So those are there. Yeah, we left all of our articles and everything up there. There's also, you know, 2,000 testimonials up there from readers, as well as we have the testimonials from all the big guys, you know, so you, so if you're a, a skeptical type, you can go and see we're for real. <laughs> well, Clayton, this has been just so wonderful to have you here. I've taken a ton of notes. Thank you so much for sharing so generously with us and giving us your time today. Well, thank you. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.